Hey kiddos, welcome to Dad Feelings, the podcast about fictional father figures. This week we're going back in time. And you might be asking, is this the 50s or 1999? And it's neither, actually. Good guess, but it's neither. We're going back in time to Tudor England uh, in the 1400s, 1500s. And you, if you know anything about English history, you might be looking at the episode title and thinking, Merit, uh, Thomas Cromwell, excuse me, um, Thomas Cromwell was a, was a real man. He lived uh, in that time period. He existed. And what I would say to you is that that is correct. Good work. Nice research you've done very you're very bright people you're going to go a long way but um what i would also say is that there is a very well-known fictional rendition of thomas cromwell by hillary mantel in the wolf hall series uh which is a series of, of historical novels that starts with wolf hall uh there's a sequel called bring up the bodies and there's a third book that is yet to be released as of this recording. And I think that fictional rendition is really interesting and worth talking about because uh, Hilary Mantel, I mean, she is doing very historically rooted work, but, you know, she's also explicitly stated that she has this sort of historical project of uh, revising our understandings of these characters or these historical figures. But I'm kind of getting ahead of myself. So if you don't know who Thomas Cromwell was, essentially, he was a very powerful lawyer who became uh, Henry VIII's advisor. And he was one of the people who was instrumental in uh, getting Henry an annulment from his wife and queen, Catherine of Aragon. Uh, and so Henry, um, he, you know, notoriously um, was kind of a fickle, fickle boy, fickle man. He, um, and at the time, the uh, Rome, the the Roman Catholic Church, didn't didn't really look kindly on um, on annulment and wasn't really didn't really grant divorces. Um, and getting the annulment was this very complex process where basically uh, they had to argue that Catherine had, like, was not a virgin and had um, slept with Henry's brother, even though she had claimed that she hadn't or sworn that she hadn't in order to marry him in the first place. It's all very complex and um, and absurd. But um, basically, Henry wanted Catherine out of the way, and he wanted to marry his mistress Anne Boleyn. So he had mistresses. Like, this was sort of a well-known thing, but he wanted to marry Anne Boleyn. And um, part of this was that he was really upset that he wasn't having a male heir. And part of it was that he's just uh, just a horny man. Um, and so... Cromwell was one of the figures who was really instrumental in getting Anne Boleyn in. 
Um, and then, and then Boleyn didn't give him a male heir, which is kind of an odd way of looking at it. When you think about how reproduction works, um, it's really more Henry's fault than anything. But anyway, um, Anne Boleyn gets executed and, um, and then Cromwell arranges this other marriage, um, between Henry and this German princess, Anne of Cleves, and that gets annulled after six months, and then he's sort of, like, not in as much favor. But uh, basically, like, historically, Cromwell was sort of seen as this bit player. Like, he wasn't really taken seriously by historians um, as a reformer or as sort of a power player. He was sort of just this kind of background character. And part of Hilary Mantel's project is to bring him into focus and really almost rehabilitate him, which I think is interesting. Um, so we get a lot in the first book about his, his upbringing. And basically Thomas Cromwell comes from a very low birth. And that's actually one of the pleasures of the book is that um, he starts off as this very like put upon lower class character who sort of rises up the ranks through his own scrappiness to um, be in the same room as these nobles and they're all really begrudging his presence and he's just running circles around them and it's really pleasurable to read but um yeah so he is born as a blacksmith's son and his father at least in Mantel's telling is really abusive and is just completely horrible and um, so much so, like, just just kicks his ass constantly, is just, like, physically, verbally abusing him, just this, like, horrible home. And um, so much so that he eventually runs away. And he makes it to Europe and becomes a soldier. And um, sort of that's how he, you know, becomes who he eventually is um, he acquires all these skills, he learns all these different trades, all of, like he learns the basics of law and and all of these um, different studies, and then eventually returns to England and ends up working for um, uh, for this archbishop, no cardinal, sorry, <laughs> for Cardinal uh, Thomas Wolsey, and um, he works for him until. Uh, Henry uh, comes basically comes for Wolsey <laughs> again, kind of a fickle, um, and uh, and then to, uh, Cromwell sort of escapes from that relatively unscathed. Like his master, the guy he's working for, is totally brought low and eventually dies. But um, but he basically he gets away from that and sort of ends up working his way into working for Henry, and so he. He eventually works his way into the inner circle and becomes one of Henry's advisors. And um, again, yeah, it's really great. Like um, reading these books, I think that is like a really successful thing that Mantel does is set up Cromwell as having this really abusive home and having this really terrible relationship with his own father and coming from just a very poor, really just like awful childhood, and um, and then becoming this this self assured, powerful figure who's able to just 
um, push around these nobles just with the weight of his own intellect. Um, it's really satisfying. But um, I think it's also interesting that like she really focuses on the abusiveness of his own father, which I think goes a long way towards making him sympathetic because historically Cromwell is kind of this unsympathetic figure. And part of that, a big part of that is that um, there is this play uh, called A Man for All Seasons. And it's by this guy, Robert Baltz. And it was uh, it was written in 1960. And there's a film in 66. And basically, this is a play and a film about, um, about Thomas More. And uh, Thomas More was this also this very influential statesman, this um, this religious figure, and he was this. So uh, Cromwell is sort of pushing in in all of uh, his moves to reform the English Church and to distance England from Rome, and eventually, basically, create Anglicanism, and. Um, Moore is a Catholic. He he believes in Rome and he um, has these different ideals. And um, in A Man for All Seasons, Moore is really this sympathetic figure who is kind of a martyr for his religion. And um, he's put on trial eventually. So basically, um, in trying to get Henry the power to like get a divorce or get it annulled, uh, his marriage annulled from Catherine. Uh, Cromwell and Henry like pushed this project of basically saying that the king is like the supreme authority and is like above Rome. And I'm kind of butchering the theological implications here a little bit, but but that's the sort of gist of it is they're trying to distance England from Rome and, and create the, or set up the king as the ultimate spiritual authority of the country. And in doing so, they basically have to try to get everyone to sign these pledges that say that they agree that the king is like the, the supreme authority. And um, they try to get more to sign it and he refuses and so he's eventually put on trial and he's executed for his beliefs because he refuses to uh, to sign this thing and to say that he believes that the king is the supreme spiritual authority of England. And, um, and in A Man for All Seasons is really the kind of... Um, the 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 main figure Cromwell is a villain. Um, Cromwell is this kind of like uh, sinister, um, the sinister figure, this interrogator, and and Moore is executed when he refuses to sign this oath. He's really just he he has a conscience, really, um, and he um, he dies saying, "I die, His Majesty's good servant, but God's first. Which is like, yeah, like that's um, admirable in a way, right? And uh, part of Mantel's project is to revisit that binary of more Cromwell. And uh, 
She does that in a few ways. And one is by making Cromwell more sympathetic. And I think one way that she does that is by focusing on his childhood and his relationship with his father. Another way that she does that is focusing on him as a father. So historically, uh, Cromwell did have a family. And um, uh, he married a woman named Elizabeth Weeks. And... They had three children, and um, his wife and his two girls died in 1528, and they all um, died of this plague. or the, It's called a sweating sickness that was sort of sweeping London periodically in the 1500s. And um, so only Gregory, um, his son, survives. And um, it's really heartbreaking like in the book, it's really this awful thing because Cromwell is portrayed as this really excellent father. Like, you know, in contrast to a lot of narratives and I think probably a lot of realities about the generational trauma and the ways that, um, you know, abusive families create abusive people, Cromwell doesn't seem to display any of that. He seems to just basically be an extremely good father. And like, he seems to have somehow, I mean, it's not incredibly convincing, I guess, but he seems to have put in the work or learned the right lessons from, from his own upbringing and become this really tender and caring and, um, and supportive father to his, to his children um, and like a really excellent partner as well. And so when his children die, it's this really horrible thing. Um, and it just creates this huge swell of sympathy for him. And his one child, Gregory, does live. Um, but his daughters died. And um, there's these constant sort of reminders of them throughout the books. So like this angel costume that his youngest daughter wore on Christmas is like in this closet and he he finds it every once in a while um he sees them periodically just like in the corner of his eye and um it's really horrible and it just really makes you sympathize with him and then in contrast Thomas More is portrayed as like this monster like it's almost cartoonish um he, first of all, like in his, his work essentially is, um, he is constantly torturing heretics. He is constantly like seeking out, uh, Lutherans to, um, to just literally tear apart. <laughs> um, and, um, in his family life, like there's scenes where Cromwell goes to have dinner with, with more. And he's like a tyrant in his family as well. Like he is horrible to his wife. He's like awful to his children. He's like, especially he's awful. Yeah. To his daughters and his wife. Um, and he's like kind of sexist. And this is kind of strange because like, it's almost in a way where it feels like, Oh, that feels period appropriate almost. And then Cromwell's depiction almost feels ahistorical, like the way that he is so, he really feels geared to like be a contemporary liberal hero almost. Um, 
but I'm not enough of a historian to actually say with any certainty whether that's the case or not, so I'll just leave that. But Moore is portrayed as this monster. He's this awful guy. He's like the worst dad ever. Um, he is so, so terrible. And um, and he's a Catholic. And um, so that's sort of how Mantel is uh, flipping um is sort of flipping and reversing this traditional uh, binary of these two characters is I really feel like it centers on fatherhood and um, and on the family and portraying Cromwell as this like really supportive, caring guy who is even like teaching his daughters things that I don't think women were really being taught at the time. Like he's teaching them languages. He's talking about wanting to like, show them all these different things. Um, and again, that sort of ties into the, like the liberal hero thing. Like, I'm not sure how much of that is rooted in history. Um, and more is this monster. And so in contrast to the man of all seasons where more goes to the scaffold as this martyr, he, it basically just seems like a waste when he does because Cromwell keeps giving him all of these outs and saying like, please, like, I know you're a smart guy. And like, and even Cromwell doesn't think of him as completely terrible. Like he, he knows he's smart and he knows he's like a, a devoted um, servant of the king, but he just refuses to sign this oath. And it, so it just seems like this waste when he dies and Cromwell's like, well, I did everything I could have and I'm a good guy, but I guess he's still, he has to get his head cut off. Um, and speaking of heads being cut off, well, I'll get back to that later. I'll, I'll hold on to that one. But um, so there have been like sort of these pushbacks around the series because it's extremely popular. Like it was made into a TV miniseries in the BBC. And um, it's like there have been historians who have pushed back against it and been like, uh, I don't know if Tom, if Cromwell was this like, like maligned, misunderstood kind of guy. Um like, uh, I'm not so sure, like, because some historians really think of him as, like, this kind of bullying, awful guy who's, like, getting confessions through nefarious means and, um, you know, manipulating people and acting terribly. Um, and so it's kind of, like, and Hilary Mantel has has kind of stated that she does thinks the Catholic Church is um, is not really for respectable people, um, and uh, so like she has this mission to like to really rehabilitate him, and um, and some historians have just yeah sort of thought like well you know maybe at best. Um, at Bass Moore and Cromwell were sort of fighting for opposing interpretations of the gospel. Um, but, um, but, you know, Cromwell wasn't this like this hero figure and, and Cromwell wasn't a monster. So it's sort of like, I, it's interesting to me that like, if you have this project of rehabilitating this historically maligned character, that you do that, at least partly through focusing on his family life and his role as a father. 
And um, there's also questions about like whether Cromwell actually was like a Protestant or Anglican, and it's like not really clear. Um, and uh, whether he, you know, whether he's a pragmatist or whether he actually believes those kinds of things. Um, and, um, but, but yeah, um, it's kind of, uh, odd. I think if you read these books and then go read historical perspectives, um, on people who say things like he was this like, um, figure of religious terror almost, or he was a bully or he was just this brutal, ambitious man. Um, but, um, I, they are well-written books and I think they do a good job of, of creating sympathy for this character and, and making him out to be um, maybe not a heroic character, but at least like an interesting or, or compassionate one. And again, I think the books are really pleasurable in that he comes from this really horrible upbringing and then just dances around these nobles. And it is just really one of those stories of like, you know, like a, a poor or like a prosperous person, uh, just tricking and like defeating these powerful characters through, uh, through just their wit. So I do enjoy that. But, um, so what happened to Cromwell though, is that he <laughs> eventually finds himself on the wrong side of Henry's, uh, fickle, uh, little thoughts. And, um, and so eventually, uh, Thomas Cromwell is executed. And I think that's an interesting fact when you think about, I don't want to get too much into this, but, um, uh, Stephen Bannon, who, um, you may know as a as Trump's sort of like inside advisor who is sort of argued to be like the architect of most of his policies um has said that he wants to be the Cromwell to Trump's Henry uh which you got to know that this guy just like knows who that that who Cromwell is from reading those, these books, first of all, first of all. Um, but, um, uh, does, did he, because if he, if he's only read the books, he might not know that, that Cromwell dies, that Cromwell gets, gets executed. Um, he gets, he falls out of favor, gets his dang head cut off. So, um, I don't know, maybe that's sort of a hopeful note to end on um maybe his emulation of of this historical dad will um have some results that um i don't think i would be complaining about a whole lot but uh yeah i think that'll just about do it this week for us on dad feelings um uh, I will be back next week and, um, until then keep it dadly. Oh man, I haven't had a solo up in so long. I've forgotten how I end these things. 
Um, <laughs> well, I, I think I'm just going to wrap up. That'll do it for us this week. Uh, thanks so much for listening, and I'll see you next week. Bye, kiddos. Dad Feelings is hosted by Merrick Kay and produced and edited by me, Nick Bravo. Dad Feelings is a part of Stay Me, the world's only podcast network. We're entirely listener-supported. If you enjoy the show, please consider becoming a patron of Say Me at dadfeelings.com support. Our theme music is Swell Content by Speedy Ortiz off their album Foiled Gear. Thanks to Car Park Records and Sadie Dupuy for letting us use it. Please mention us on Twitter. We're at dadfeelings and at staymeanco. Or rate and review us in iTunes. We really appreciate it. Thanks for listening.